Welcome to everyone tuning in. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brian Shipley. I'm the co-CIO here at Arnrich Messina, a Portland-based investment advisory firm bringing our unique and disciplined process and philosophy to nonprofit endowments and foundations, high net worth individuals and families, and corporate clients. Today I'm here with my colleague research analyst Mitch Vogt for our first research-focused podcast where we dive deep into our investment research and share our thoughts on the market landscape and on specific investment topics. This is our year-end recap and commentary, so we'll be talking about what happened in 2018 and how that affects the environment and our outlook as we head into 2019. Mitch, thanks for being here today. It's been a really interesting year and I'm looking forward to a lively discussion. Thanks, Brian. I'm as well. Shall we start off with a broad overview of 2018 and hit on some of the high points before we dive into 2019? Sounds great. To simply summarize, 2018 was a year where diversification really didn't matter. Um, when cash generating about a 2% return for the year is kind of top of the charts from an absolute return standpoint, you knew it was a pretty rough market for both equities and bonds. Private real estate and private equity held up pretty well, but really across the board, it was a, an extremely challenging year, particularly in the fourth quarter. Um, the S&P 500, 500 finished the year about 4.4% down. International stocks were down about 14% with emerging kind of slightly behind that. Um, the dollar remained really strong during the year. The Fed continued its, its height cycle. Uh, we're now two years into the cycle and there's been nine hikes really from kind of a baseline of zero. Um, but it, it kind of felt like we hit a bit of an inflection point. I think, I think the market's been generally comfortable with the pace and at, at how the Fed's been kind of trying to slow the economy and smooth the economy. Um, but in December, during that last rate hike, there was some, some pretty significant tension between the Fed and, and President Trump, where he, he took to Twitter, as he usually does, and uh, you know, kind of challenged the Fed to, to, to stop this rate hike cycle and that, that uh, things were getting a little bit too far too fast. And the Fed kind of continued on its pace and, and hiked one more time. Um, coming out of that meeting, I think a few days after that, the Fed really kind of softened its tone a little bit in, uh, in regard to what was actually said in the message versus what they're intending to do. And so you actually saw markets move a little bit in that environment and kind of shift a little bit from what we've seen over the last two years. The dollar actually weakened coming out of that announcement and U.S. stocks actually traded off even harder relative to international markets. So a bit of a capitulation that we'll definitely want to keep an eye on in 2019. Um, while it was a challenging year uh, for equities, we can't forget that we're coming off nine consecutive years of really strong stock market performance, and we really should expect markets to be um, experience some stress and some challenge from time to time. It was a fantastic year for earnings growth from a corporate standpoint, and it's just kind of always an interesting reminder that stocks don't really trade in tandem with what's happening from a corporate earnings standpoint, a GDP growth standpoint. It's really a forward-looking mechanism. Yeah, Brian, I think you nailed it when you said uh, the fourth quarter was, was really where the difficulty was. Uh, if, if I could summarize Q4 in three words, it, it would be return to volatility. Uh, we, we looked at the statistic um, number of up days, 2% up days for the S&P 500, and number of 2% down days for the S&P 500. And we looked over the last 20 or 25 years, and 2017 was a bit of an anomaly. We had zero days where the S&P 500 was up 2%, and zero days where the S&P 500 was down 2%. And I think that only happened one other year in, in the period we looked at. Uh, 2018 was, was a different story, though. We saw 
five days where the S&P 500 was up 2% and 15 days where the S&P 500 was down 2%. Generally, what we saw over the, over the time frame we looked at, um, there was a pretty symmetric amount of days where the S&P 500 was up and down 2%, so call it anywhere in the 5 to 10 range. Uh, or so on average, whereas 15 was, was really skewed, uh, 2018 was really skewed to the downside with 15 2% down days. 2018 also saw multiple spikes in the VIX above 25, something we hadn't seen since 2015. The VIX is a measure of implied volatility based on options pricing. And we see that when the VIX spikes, it means options traders believe volatility is going to be higher over the next 30 days. We'd also be remiss not to talk about uh, kind of trade tensions and what's been happening in 2018 and even into 2019. Um, it's really become a bit of a standoff between the U.S. and China, which tends to get the, the headlines, but um, the U.S. has actually been pretty aggressive in kind of trade talks with other um, really predominant um, economies across the globe. It's important for investors to kind of understand where and why we're engaging with these talks. I mean, it's, and, and also it's, it's notable to understand that really moving away from this trend of really globalism and, and countries relying on the strength of other countries to kind of improve their trade and really kind of get the best out of every country and, and what they have to offer. Um, but, but from a U.S. standpoint, this really kind of boils down to a focus on protecting intellectual property. When you think of a device like the iPhone and the amount of work and design that went into that and the amount of kind of copyright um, patents that, that Apple wants to protect, uh, in that device, it, it, we, we've kind of been living in kind of a soft environment in terms of kind of protecting those rights. Another simple way to think about it, a senior consultant here at Arnrich and I were joking about during during Christmas time and shopping for our kids, and, and my kids are big fans of Legos, and uh, you think about all the work that goes into designing these really kind of interesting and unique Lego sets, and, and also just the licensing costs that Lego has to pay to a group like Star Wars if it's you know, if you're building a, a, a Lego set that, that has a Star Wars theme to it or Harry Potter or whatever it is, but then you can go onto a site like Alibaba, which is very similar to an Amazon.com, but um, is a Chinese-based company, and you type in whatever you're looking for, and you can find these kind of knockoff Lego products that are actually pretty good replicas of what Lego has produced. But these companies aren't paying the licensing fees to, to a Star Wars or a Harry Potter they're not putting in the design work that goes into kind of designing these Legos. And so they're delivering it to the marketplace at a very, very low cost and kind of undercutting a lot of the quality work that, that's been put in behind, whether it's Lego or Apple or whoever uh, the company is producing this product. That's really what, we're, what, what the U.S. is trying to kind of rally against and, and, and protect that intellectual property. Yeah, and one more example that, that we've been looking at quite a bit recently uh, in, in terms of impact investing would be solar panel and R&D expenses. And, and solar panel companies in the United States have been, have been spending many years and lots of, of resources developing the, the best technology and the best product. And, and once they develop that, they send those, uh, those plans over to China so China can manufacture it. However, in that process, these Chinese companies are, are ripping that IP, uh, stealing that, and producing them themselves at a lower cost, and then undercutting the price that these American companies are charging in the market, and really putting these American companies out of business, because these, these companies have spent 
years um, on on R and D expenses, and and they've they've planned to amortize those expenses over years of profitability um, in the in the sales of of these solar panels that they're now getting undercut for, and that's that's leaving these American companies in a really tough position. So uh, China overall has not fared well through these trade tariffs. They've, they've slipped in, their stock market has slipped into bear market territory down greater than 20% from its 2018 peak. Um, China's uh, economy, very export driven, the exports to imports ratio is, is five to one. And, and so uh, trade tensions are very detrimental to growth in the Chinese economy. And, and we've seen um, maybe maybe ahead of the trade tensions, but we've seen some, some uh, slowing of Chinese growth. Um, it was really up near 7% per year, which is uh, quite incredible at, at the size uh, their economy has, um, has been. And, and Chinese internet companies uh, have really, really been, in our view, overvalued and might be reaching bubble territory. So part of the sell-off is, is due to that as well, as, as that's what really drove 2017 market returns for uh, the Chinese equity markets, but also part of it is due to uh, the tariff situation. Yeah, and just real quickly to kind of wrap up 2018, we saw really dramatic swings in oil prices in the fourth quarter, um, kind of entering the quarter at a peak of about $77, going all the way down to 42%, so or $42 a barrel. So just this massive decline, which really hurt um, kind of value equities that had a bias towards energy-related stocks, something to keep an eye on in 2019. Um, but that really recaps kind of 2018. Again, a really challenging year. Uh, diversification um, didn't work quite as well as we would have hoped, although I think we're seeing some positive signs where we're seeing markets behave a little bit differently, which we're encouraged by. But more importantly, um, let's start, let's shift the conversation and kind of look forward and what are some of the things that we're looking at as an organization. And, and first and foremost, that's kind of the behavior of the Fed going into 2019. And, and Mitch, I know you've spent some time kind of t looking through what are some of the levers the Fed can use to kind of accelerate growth or decelerate growth. So why don't you give the audience a, a little bit of perspective on the Fed and what, what they're doing? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Fed really has three tools for conducting monetary policy. They have the discount rate, which is historically what they've used. They they target the Fed funds rate, and and most interest rates are building blocks on top of the Fed funds rate. So that is the basic rate that that really controls interest rates, whether it's it's bonds or mortgages across the board. Um, and, and historically, they move that up and down based on where we're at in the cycle. Uh, there's open market operations, which is buying and selling bonds in the open market. And that is um, really what we saw this cycle for the first time. Uh, and, and we've only seen one side of that move. Um, and I'll expand on that. And then there's the reserve requirement, which is, has much let much more muted effect on the economy is is not uh, not widely used by the Fed and really not not understand not widely understood how it would affect the economy. So we'll we'll kind of skip that one for now. Uh, every cycle, the the Fed has utilized the discount rate to discuss uh, to uh, stimulate or or slow the economy, and that's that's moving the Fed funds rate up and down. So late in the cycle to combat inflation, they'll move Fed funds rate up. Uh, at quite after a, a recession, 
going into and after a recession, they'll move the Fed funds rate down to stimulate the economy and create cheaper borrowing. But what was unique about this cycle is they also expanded their balance sheet. They pumped liquidity into the system through the Open Market Operations Committee, um, which, which bought bonds up to, uh, I don't know, $5 trillion, is that right, Brian? Uh, a, yeah, pretty pretty large balance sheet, and and so that really propped up asset prices and and fueled this bull market cycle that we've seen. But the flip side of that is we haven't seen that unwind. We've never had a past bull market fueled by open market operations, and we don't know what normalization of the balance sheet looks like. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of have two factors at play right now. We have interest rates and and the Fed funds rate rising, but at the same time, we have the balance sheet rolling off. Right. I'm just curious your thoughts on how those compete with each other and um, uh, going forward, how, how, which one might have a bigger, bigger impact on the investment landscape. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We are in unprecedented territory. I mean, the, the Fed kind of stepped in to really kind of calm the markets and provide some stabilization to the markets. and. You know, from that standpoint, on a look-back basis, it's mission accomplished for the Fed, but it's it's how do we get out of this or kind of start unwinding that balance sheet that is a really, a really big challenge going forward. And you know, I think you're right. There's been a lot of companies who have benefited from kind of low-cost uh, borrowing and have really kind of levered up their balance sheet. We were actually just listening to a webcast that um, suggested a, a portion of the, the corporate bond market looking at kind of the triple B issues. and if you were to apply kind of historical leverage um, ratios to mm -hmm. the triple B market, about half of that would have been considered junk just a, a, a handful of years ago, which is pretty astounding. And so, But not a surprise, because rating agencies get so much external pressure right. to keep debt That's at right. triple B investment grade, yeah. because when it's downgraded to double B, there's a whole lot of buyers out there who have to instantly sell it, yeah. insurance agencies, banks, you name it. And that is a lot of downward pressure on the price for the bond, and uh, companies don't want to see absolutely. that. Absolutely. So at some point, there there has to become truth to that, right? These companies can't necessarily continue to borrow at those levels into perpetuity without really improving their balance sheet. And so I think I think that's really kind of the challenge going forward. I think a lot of corporations have really healthy balance sheets and can definitely can definitely withstand a, a more challenging environment. But it's it's that segment of the market, call it the the. Lower quality companies that have been living on this really cheap debt for a long period of time without really kind of growing their operations. Those are the companies that, you know, I think frankly we would be the most concerned about today. They tend to be kind of junky, higher growth type companies, and uh, you know that's a segment of the market that, that frankly, if we were to point to kind of one area that 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 would give us some concern, not necessarily how our our uh, client portfolios are positioned, but just that could be a shock to the market. That that would probably be mm -hmm. it. If you look at you know, what drove the 2008 crisis. And I don't think we're going to see a replay of that with, you know, high, high housing prices and a collapse in the housing market. It's probably going to come if we do see some sort of correction or some sort of, um, I want to call it panic, but just unknown, that might be where it comes from. So what's, what is the impact on rates then? Uh, sorry, I should rephrase that. When, when the balance sheet rolls, how do you see that affecting rates? It's, it depends on who becomes that buyer, mm -hmm. right? So the Fed has been the buyer of those issues, and you know, do they have um, who 
who's that next person to step in? Is it pensions? Is it, uh, is it foreign governments? So China's a, a massive holder of our debt, although it's been declining somewhat here of late. Um, that's the big question. That's the big uncertainty of um, you know, who kind of absorbs this supply that the Fed has put, put out there that needs to find a new home mm -hmm. effectively. And a lot of talk is about this interest rate differential between what the U.S. government bonds yield versus what a, a German boon would, would yield. And it's, a, it's about 2.5%. It's kind of stayed in about that range. And people with that, you hear a lot of people talk about, well, you're just going to have foreign governments continue to borrow from the U.S. Um, because of that rate differential. But the reality is, is the cost to hedge that uh, really kind of negate, negates all of that interest rate advantage. So, right. And, and for listeners, the reason why you would hedge that is because it's it's such a low return. It's it's two and a half, three percent, and it's very normal to see a currency move by that much in either direction in a year. So you don't want to be um, what's professionally called naked on the trade because you you want you want the return of the bond and not the currency to be influencing your total return. So it's it's really kind of. Two paths. Somebody has to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, do foreign governments step in and, and kind of absorb that capacity? Unknown. But on the flip side, the U.S. really can't handle the shock of rates rising substantially because then they have the in interest obligation to you know, roll that debt over, and that's not a very... Correct. Um, so likely outcome there, the Fed just prints their way into paying off that debt and that weakens the dollar. That would weaken, or, that would, that's exactly what would happen. And, and probably the more likely of the two outcomes is, is that path where we see a weaker dollar and we think we position client portfolios really nicely for that kind of environment. But the flip side is in, in volatility, people get scared and they, they fly the quality and fly the safety. Yeah. And so they'll sell their stocks and buy bonds, which are artificially suppresses, yeah. maybe not artificially, suppresses interest rates. So a couple questions on the Federal Reserve, just, just fun off the cuff, um, and then we'll move on. With no more rate hikes and only balance sheet reduction, will the Fed push us into a recession? Hard to know. I mean, at some point, we've had this amazing recovery since 2008, 2009. So I think, frankly, our economy is due for a bit of a setback. Does mm -hmm. it have to be, does recession have to be a harbinger of, of these terrible things to come and a massively negative stock market? Not necessarily. We could have, we could have a recession that's rather shallow and the market just kind of trades right through it. Um, hard to know. Okay, so, yeah, so I'll there, rephrase there's my like, there's questions. There's a nice neutral. I'll rephrase my <laughs> questions going forward so you can't give me yeah. a hard to know. Uh, true or false, the Federal Reserve or central banks more broadly have killed pensions. Because I, I see pensions as one of the greatest employee retention tools. It's, it's great for business. But when a pension needs risk-free return of X percent, which is maybe somewhere in the 5 to 8 range, and, and now with all of this, this debt ballooning, you can't, I mean, you can't get that kind of yield risk-free from from a bond, so you have to go into equity, but then you're taking on too much risk, and so companies are just saying, I'm out, I'm not doing a, a pension anymore. Yeah, I'm gonna give you another kind of oh, answer okay, on this, well. but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the Fed has definitely kind of posed some challenges for pension systems, but I think the way pensions were set up and their obligation structure wasn't a, a long-term solution. The, 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 the obligations that 
they promised their pensionees were just unsustainable. And I think we're, we're kind of coming to that realization today. And, and frankly, that's some of the challenges that we face as a country going forward is our obligations, not only from kind of a, just a standalone debt standpoint, but what we, what we owe in, in Social Security, pension obligations, all of those things um, are going to pose a challenge for this country. Uh, and this isn't necessarily 10, 20 years out. This is, this, is a, this is a challenge that we need to face and kind of digest together as a nation here in the near term. Okay, well, I think that's probably enough on the Fed. Should we move on to international EM frontier? Maybe start with trade wars and then get into valuation differentials. Sure. I think we did we did talk enough on trade wars before. A couple notes that that I left out: um, GDP as per, or exports as a percent of GDP is only eight percent for the U.S. That that number is much higher. I think it's closer to twenty five percent for China and and pushing fifty percent for some countries like Taiwan, South Korea. I don't I don't know the exact percents no. off the top of my head, but. Again, here domestically, I, I, can't, I can't see directly tariffs causing a recession as, as we might have seen a little bit back in the Great Depression, Smoot-Hawley uh, era. But uh, imports are, again, only 4% of GDP. However, the bigger knock-on effect is corporate profits because, mm -hmm. you know, revenues for S&P 500 is almost 50% uh, international versus U.S., um, any thoughts to add there? Yeah, I mean, we, we just from a valuation standpoint, we've definitely been, um, we found international markets a little bit more compelling from mm -hmm. a valuation standpoint. And I think we saw that come to bear, and, and it sounds like you have some, some kind of follow-on comments there. But, um, you know, as, as we think about positioning client portfolios, we're extremely sensitive to uh, what we're paying to get certain exposure to asset classes. And I'm not talking about what we're paying in terms of active versus passive and the management fee that the, the managers have, but it's more about um, what prices we're paying for the stocks, mm -hmm. the, the fundamental stocks in that portfolio. And we'll probably get a little bit more into this when we talk about growth value and kind of the FANG stocks. But um, I think that's one of the one of the really interesting things is, is we're seeing almost single digit PEs, certainly in emerging markets, which mm -hmm. frankly have some of the most compelling growth characteristics. Um, and I think one of the more encouraging things that we saw in December is December was a really brutal month for U.S. stocks, and emerging markets actually held, held up pretty up well. Fairly well, yeah. And even after all that volatility yeah. in the U.S. and a decent performance in the EM, yeah. we're still way skewed towards, towards international and EM in terms of cheap valuations. Right. We have the U.S., which is trading at 14.4 times forward earnings, which right in line, maybe slightly below its long-term average, but international, 11.5 times forward earnings, which is three quarters, 75% of its long-term average. And like you said, emerging markets is in, in the single digits. It's, yeah. it's nine point something, which, which is crazy. And usually a PE is, is pricing growth of the future, growth of, of future earnings. But right now, if you looked at the numbers, you, you would say that's not the case. Emerging markets are supposed to earn uh, high single digits with the U.S. in 2019, but 2020 they're supposed to earn 11.2 percent, or they're supposed to grow earnings growth at 11.2 percent, which is a full percent higher than the U.S. So you're paying significantly less for more growth in earnings, and and that just uh, you know the math works out. I, I think Warren Buffett says 
the markets are a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine in the long term. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, uh, conversely, what we say at the previous cycle, uh, EM can trade at a premium to, yeah. to the U.S. It's, it's, that's a, a lot of what we saw in the 2000 to 2008 cycle. And then just to take the conversation a little bit further into frontier markets specifically, I, you know, frankly, I would say I was a little bit disappointed by that asset class, not, not necessarily just in kind of the absolute return, but um, more so in its diversification characteristics. I mean, we look to those markets to really provide a different exposure and a different return pattern than what we would see in international or EM or US. And you know, we saw some, some pretty significant kind of macro events in some predominant frontier market uh, countries like Argentina, you know, had a, had a massive markdown in their currency, um, and there's a handful of other uh, countries that really face some significant challenges. So we continue to look at that space as a really nice diversifier, and the fact that we're paying kind of single-digit PEs with a dividend yield north of five, I believe, mm -hmm. it's pretty compelling. Yeah, definitely. So we'd be remiss to talk about 2018 and, not look, and looking into 2019 without talking about the FANG stocks, and so we're talking about... Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, uh, Netflix to some extent. Uh, interesting stat for 2018 was um, there's only 23 stocks within the S&P 500 that actually had a 30% return uh, for, for 2018 and 332 stocks in the index actually had a negative return um, for the year. Uh, Mitch, what, what insights do you have for FANG, not only in the fourth quarter where they really kind of fell apart, but still finished the year with pretty amazing returns, but yeah, more looking forward, what are we thinking in that space? Well, it's really a, a tale of two halves or three quarters and one quarter, but right. Netflix, my goodness, was up 106% from beginning of the year to the peak in 2018. That means if you put a dollar in, it doubled. Double. To put that in perspective, Japanese investors who bought the Nikkei index in 1990 still haven't returned their oh my their goodness. initial principal from the drop. That's amazing. So all you needed to do was not buy Japan 30 years ago or 20, whatever, eight years ago, wait, put that money in Netflix, and in seven or eight months, it's already doubled. Amazon was up 75% beginning of the year to peak. Facebook had a little Q2, Q3 rally of 36%. That's Those are just numbers you don't see, and I, I feel like... With, with cryptocurrencies and everything that's happened recently, people are used to seeing these parabolic moves, but mm -hmm. uh, in historical context, that, that's something that is just unheard of. But, but then we saw the flip side of that. We saw Amazon down 33%, Netflix down 42%, wow. which was almost a 50% move. And, and people hear, oh, 106% and 42%, but what you don't understand is when a dollar goes to $2, that's a 100% move. But then when it loses half of its money again, $2 with a negative 50% return is back to a dollar. Right. So really that's, that's almost a symmetrical move up and then back down. Um, what, but uh, we talked about valuations and, and it's just crazy the, the kind of growth rates that were priced in. If, if you take PEG and back out um, uh, PEG, which is price to earnings to growth, and then you back that out by comparing it to its forward uh, PE, we calculated a, an implied growth rate of 137% for Amazon, 99% for Netflix, and 27% for Google. And that's, th those just aren't 
sustainable numbers. Hard to sustain those levels. Yeah. So easier to sustain those growth rates when you're a smaller company and you have this mm -hmm. massive platform to grow, but harder to do when you're one of the largest stocks in the S&P 500 right. and maintain that growth. And that's just managers deviating from fundamentals. That's, that's people saying, oh, I'm going to look at price to eyeballs and, and making up their own metrics to justify the price they're paying for these uh, these stocks. Yeah, one, one way we like to think about the price people are paying as, as, as it relates to growth stocks or even any stock is when you're looking at the PE, one way to think about the PE is the number that you get, the price you pay per per you know every year's earnings. If it's, I think Netflix was pushing 200 kind of mm -hmm. at its peak in September timeframe, 200 years for an investor to be paid back on on earnings. That's that's a long wow. time to wait that, if that nothing changes. And, and granted, it's, it's going to change for Netflix, yeah. right? They'll continue to kind of grow their grow their revenues, and so it, that only goes f so far. But at least it puts it into kind of the context of what you're paying for that for that earnings mm -hmm. in this year's dollars. So yeah, and and part of the catalyst was just a slow and global growth, but also a big catalyst was interest rates. What, what a lot of people don't understand is um, a stock is 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 discounted the discount the sum of discounted cash flows is what you pay for it so when you have a growth company that a lot of its value is based on what it could earn 10 years down and you go from down the road you go from discounting that at a i don't know five percent rate to eight percent rate because interest rates jump that makes it worth a lot less today because every year you're dividing it by 1.08 mm -hmm. instead of 1.05 whereas a value company is really based on what what the company more based on what the company's worth today as opposed to down the road and so they're a lot less affected by rising interest yeah. rates uh, but again i this is really an area where we we would say value is is a bit of a no-brainer yeah. right yeah um and, and uh, to dovetail on one of brian's earlier comments uh, we 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 would definitely say implement value through an active manager um, utilities, real estate, consumer staples, there are areas of value that are overpriced and generally are somewhat tied to interest rates, yeah. and interest rates are pretty difficult to predict. Yeah, when we started looking at kind of that value versus growth trade-off, the sectors that you just named were actually trading at not only a, a premium to their historical PEs, but we're actually trading at a premium to the market, whereas tech and some other more interesting sectors that, that perhaps have a little bit higher quality companies are actually trading below market. So when we talk about putting on a value tilt, it's also, also in the context of quality as well. So making sure if you're doing that through an active manager that, that they're looking at the quality of the company. This kind of goes back to our conversation about corporate credit and that triple B mm -hmm. space is, you know, in, it, this, at this stage in an economic cycle where we're kind of in the later stages, if not kind of tipping over, it is really important that these managers are doing their homework and actually have a firm grasp of the credit quality uh, of those companies and their ability to repay the debt on that. Yeah, great. So should we just finish with volatility and talking about the landscape of volatility as a whole? Sure. And so in light of recent events, uh, it's, it would be hard hard not to talk about volatility. And, and what I am trying to wrap my mind around is how is volatility changing? Because we have two opposing forces. We have passive investing, which you would imagine greatly decreases the experience of volatility. But then we have algorithmic trading and algo trading, which, which is a huge boost to volatility because that's, that's trading a lot more 
quickly. Uh, obviously, our portfolios, I would say, are, are well diversified and positioned to hold up well. We have a heavy allocation to private equity in most cases, which is only marked every three months. Uh, so may may be marked once or twice during a period of fall. But uh, what are your thoughts on the changing landscape of volatility? Yeah, just to just to put. Um, some context around this return to volatility that we saw in the fourth quarter. Um, while it felt abrupt, that was actually fairly natural. Um, I think the real anomaly that we've seen, and I think we've, we've written a lot of blog posts about this, but 2017, I don't think we had a single day of plus or minus 2%, no. which that is unheard of. Right. Um, in fact, in our fourth quarter uh, market commentary, we actually have a really interesting slide that shows that the number of days that are either plus or minus, and it's definitely picked up in 2018, mm-hmm. and most of that uh, came in the fourth quarter, and I think you pointed to um, some of the reasons behind that. Um, some of it is around kind of passive implementation, which tends to be lower trading strategies, and and then this idea of kind of quantitative programmatic trading through algorithms. It's it's hard to know their influence on the market, to be quite frank. But I think we'd be naive to not be aware of how the market constituency has changed over the last 10, 15 years. Is Passive, uh, passive approaches to investing become much more popular for a lot of good reasons. But what we need to be concerned about is there is there a tipping point when the market becomes too skewed towards these people who really don't have a view on the market and aren't willing to kind of do the work to figure out what a company is worth and just rely on the person next to them. Mm-hmm. When there's fewer people next to you actually deciding what a stock's worth, I think we're going to enter a market that's more volatile, right? There's going to be kind of more of these air gaps where um, the market thinks uh, a company is worth X on day one and, and then kind of that bid disappears and trying to figure out where the true value is. So um, I think we saw a little bit of that in the fourth quarter as these um, alg- algorithmic and more kind of programmatic trading programs um, were trying to figure out what the right price was. I mean, we saw some pretty massive moves. Um, and, and frankly, I think we should expect a little bit more of that going into 2019 as well. Right. I would just say passive buyers can also be passive sellers so people who are buying index funds can also be selling index funds and that's i would think would accelerate any downside moves and then just to further dig into the the quant manager there can't be that many different metrics these quant quant managers are trading on and and i would think people you and i would interpret a stock much with a much wider range of opinion than quant managers because they're just looking at at metrics and and so because there's less diversity of opinion there there's going to be quicker moves up and quicker moves down everyone's going to sell on new data or buy on new data because they're they're interpreting that data more similarly so i could i you know i i think there will be some some more violent moves uh in the future as, as quant trading and passive investing both contribute to volatility. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's definitely been um, a lot of interest in kind of factor investing, which kind of goes into a lot of these a lot of these programs. And, you know, frankly, they're all kind of mining, data mining the same data set over the last 20 or 30 years. And, and to think that that environment is necessarily going to kind of repeat itself over the next 20, 30 years, that, that would worry me a little bit if I was... Um, entirely focused on kind of factor investing and expecting the his, you know, history kind of to kind of repeat itself. Um, and I, I, you know, I guess in summary, what we would say to that and volatility in and of itself is, you know, we think it's really important to kind of stay the course and stay invested. Um, interesting note. So on a daily basis, the S and P generally is up about fifty four percent of the time. So that's kind of a 
<laughs> you know, flip of a coin, basically. If you push that out to a month, it's up 60% of the time. So the odds are in your favor a little bit better. If you look at every quarter, it's up 66%. And then every year, it's up 72% of the time. So generally, we want to lean into the odds. And the odds would tell us that on a year-in, year-out basis, stocks are generally going to be higher. There's, there's periods where you should be aware of what you're paying for those stocks mm -hmm. in 2018. And the fourth quarter in particular is kind of one of those, one of those environments. But, but for the most part, it's really, really challenging the time in the market, and we haven't found anybody that's been able to mm -hmm. do that with precision. Um, so it's more just be aware of it and kind of have a nuanced approach and be aware and kind of tilt your portfolios to, to areas that are a little bit more interesting from an opportunistic standpoint and avoid those areas that, that get a little bit overheated that we saw with the FANG stocks in the fourth quarter. And I would imagine, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, and I, I doubt you do, but if you looked at those same numbers with a 60-40 stocks, bonds, or 75-25, you, you probably have even higher percentages of when, when those are up, right? Well, I think that about wraps it up. So that's kind of our views on 2018 and uh, looking forward into 2019. Uh, for more information and discussion on investment topics, please visit our website at ourrichmessina.com. You can check out our previous podcast covering investment trends to watch for 2019, read our blog, or take a look at our research section. I'd like to thank Mitch Vogt for joining us today, and a huge thank you for all of you who are listening. Have a great 2019. Thank you for listening to Arnerch Messina's podcast. Please see the podcast description for important copyright and disclaimer information.